There are two readings tonight, and the first reading is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 8, verses 19. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God, who I consult the dead on behalf of the living, to the law and to the testimony? If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and, looking upward, will curse their king and their god. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The second reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching 
the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. This is God's word. We're going to be in Matthew 4 this evening, so do keep that open. But obviously he's quoting from Isaiah 9, and any excuse really to feel Christmassy. Uh, it's only four months, I think, in a week, so uh, time to start getting ready. I'm sure the shops will tell us soon. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, Matthew 4, we're in this evening. Why don't we pray as we look at it together? Our Father, thank you that you, as you've reminded us already uh, many times this evening, uh, you speak and your words are good for us to sustain us, to give us hope, to guide us, that we know you better. So Father, again, as we come to uh, these words of Matthew, these words of Jesus, please would you speak to us? Would you address each of us by your Spirit as we need, that we would know Christ better and live for him? Amen. It's been said of our generation that we are one who listen with our eyes and think with our feelings. I don't know how well you think that describes you, someone who listens with your eyes and thinks with your feelings. I know quite often it describes me. I I think it describes many that I know, spend time with. And so the question for a church in a generation like this, a church who wants people to experience the Jesus that we know, the Jesus that we love. The question is, will his word work? That's what we have from Jesus. We don't have pictures, we don't have videos that we can put up on the internet. We just have his word in the Bible. And will it work with people, with a generation, a culture that listens with our eyes instead of our ears, that thinks with our feelings? To put it another way, we've heard from Dave and Chris and Nathan this evening what they've been doing over the last couple of years, what they're hoping to do in the future. Have they just wasted the last two years? Chris and Nathan, as they go on to word ministry in the future, are they wasting their lives? Thinking that sitting down with students, with children, with adults, and reading the Bible is going to make any difference in this generation, in this century... Will Jesus' words work? Or do we need a new strategy? Do people need to see things, whatever it is? Do they need to see the church make poverty history or save the rainforest? Do they need to see astonishing miracles and healing ministries? Is that what will bring people to Jesus in this century, in this generation? Well, Matthew 3 and 4, we've been seeing the few months before Jesus starts his public ministry... It starts really in chapter 5 with the Sermon on the Mount. And that sets the agenda for Matthew. For Matthew in particular, Jesus is Jesus the teacher. As he gathers clouds, as he gathers his disciples and teaches. And so here in this section of chapter 4, we lay the foundation for his teaching ministry. We get two rock-solid certain reasons why Jesus' word will work. Why Jesus' word will be effective to bring people to him, to show himself to them, to change lives. 
that will set the foundation for the rest of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus the teacher, and will set the foundation for a church to have a new confidence, a stronger confidence that Jesus' word will change lives, will change the world in this century and generation like any other. So as we look at it, we're going to see Jesus' word at work and see what it does. So first we look at verses 12 to 17, where we see that Jesus' word shines light. As Matthew reaches back into that passage from Isaiah 9, to show that in a world of darkness and confusion and death, Jesus' word brings life, it brings light. It's worth saying, if Jesus had PR strategists, consultants, they would never have let him do verse 12. If you look down verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Or literally, he withdrew to Galilee. By telling us about John's arrest, this is Matthew saying, it's time for a a switchover. John's ministry is kind of at an end. He's being put out of the spotlight. Jesus, he's now going to come into his prominence. This is the moment where he should go to the Jordan, where John's followers are leaderless, angry that he's been arrested. Here's a ready crowd. He'll be an instant success. He can take the country by storm. Or he should go to Jerusalem. That's where the people are who make a difference. That's where he can get an audience of people who can actually do something, where he can influence the culture, where he can get his ideas out there in the marketplace. But instead he returns, he withdraws to Galilee. It's a step backwards, out of the limelight, out of any chance of reaching anyone who's going to make a difference and have an impact. This is like David Cameron starting a campaign for re-election with an interview in Knitting Monthly. It's just it's not going to make any difference. No one's going to see it, read it. Some might, sorry. Uh, if that's you. In fact, later on, Jesus will be dismissed for this decision. People will ask mockingly, can, it, can the Christ come from Galilee? Surely from somewhere more important. But Jesus goes because he's not listening to PR consultants. He's not going to be that sort of Messiah. He's not going to come with political influence. He's not going to be rubbing shoulders with the top tier. We saw last week in the desert that Jesus' path of, as Messiah, his road to victory will be through suffering, through death. And here Matthew shows us that he will embrace obscurity because these are exactly the sort of people that Jesus has come for. He's come for those who are far away, who are unimpressive, insignificant, He's come to those who are in darkness. In the language of the quotation from Isaiah, those who are in darkness. Let's look at it and see the three ways that uh, Matthew and Isaiah describe the people that Jesus has come for. See down verse 13. Leaving Nazareth, he, Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people living in darkness have seen great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light is dawned. See, there were three ways that Isaiah, that Matthew describes the people Jesus has come to. It's Galilee of the Gentiles at the end of verse 15. Ever since the exile, God's people kicked out of this land, it's been a bit of a, a racial, national melting pot in Galilee. It has been not properly Jewish for hundreds of years. The Jews, God's chosen people, they were his light to the world. They were the ones to show his goodness, his power to the world. But Jesus doesn't come to them first. He comes to 
non-Jewish, to Gentile Galilee. He comes to the outsiders, to the ones who have nothing to commend them, to the ones who can't expect anything from God when he turns up into the world. Jesus comes to the Gentiles. And then in verse 16, described as the people living in darkness. Again, it's those who don't have God's word, don't have a history of seeing God act for them on their behalf. The Bible says the Gentiles outside God's people are living in darkness. It's a darkness about who God is. Heaven is opaque. We can all make guesses about what we think runs the universe, but they are just guesses in the dark. There's a darkness as well morally. We know this is a world where there's betrayal and distrust and sexism. A world where there's abuse and violence and muggings and genocide. And Jesus didn't come to just the lightest fringes, just the most respectable parts that can scrub themselves up. Jesus came into the darkness. And in particular, again in verse 16, to those living in the land of the shadow of death. It's the part of our darkness that Isaiah especially draws out. The dark shadow that death casts over all of our lives, mocking all of our achievements because we can't take them with us when we go. We know that the happiest family will be, at some point, torn apart by bereavement. We know that death is the ultimate statistic, that no one can do anything about it, that every man and woman and child in the world right now is living under the shadow of death, whether we like to think about it or not, whether we like to acknowledge it or not. That we all live in darkness because we live in the shadow of death. And Jesus returned to Galilee. He withdrew to Galilee to show this is who he's coming for. Those who are far off outsiders, those who are mixed up in the muck and darkness of this world, those who are living under the shadow of death. Jesus comes for people like them, like us. And he comes as light. Twice in verse 16, they've seen a great light. A light has dawned. Jesus comes as light into the dark black mess of the world. Now I guess most of you, like me, don't really appreciate light that much because we don't really know what darkness is. Certainly in London, you can be walking the streets at 3am if you ever are, and you suddenly realise it's pretty much the same as it would be at 3pm. Most of the shops are closed, but in terms of light, it's all exactly the same. A couple of months ago, I had the privilege of visiting uh, Matt and Katie Lindley in Madagascar with Emma, and... I was struck there by what darkness is. It's sort of what Simon was saying earlier, being on camp, seeing the stars. But we had a meal, uh, visiting one of the local church leaders in a village where there was no light. A dozen of us or so in a room, sat on the floor, with one shivering flame from an oil lamp, sat up on a side. And the twelve of us sat round, couldn't really see anything. Everything's grey, there's no texture to anything I'd only met some of the guys recently. I couldn't tell which one was which because there wasn't enough light to see their features. I couldn't see what I was eating, which might have been a good thing. I heard a rumor there were fish heads in there, and I was fine not knowing that. But you can't see what you're eating. You can't see who you're talking with. You can't see the smiles on their faces. And you certainly don't know what's just outside the house, whether it's friendly, whether it's dangerous. And going from there and coming back to somewhere where there's electricity at the press of a switch, light is good. when you're living in darkness. Is it living in darkness, not just for the evening, not just overnight. Living in darkness is how Matthew describes our world. 
24-7, not really able to see what we're doing, who's around us, what the reality is. And Jesus comes as light. And in particular, it is Jesus' word that brings light. That's why in verse 17 we see how Jesus brings light. It's by preaching. Verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's Jesus' word, it's his preaching that shines light, that stabs into a dark world. And in particular, I think you can say it like this in verse 17, Jesus' light, it shines and it guides. So it shines on the kingdom of heaven. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And as Jesus speaks, the hope of the kingdom of heaven shines from his words. It's described, I think the best description in this chapter is verses 23 to 25 that we had read. That's in verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. This is a mini description, which we fleshed out through the rest of Matthew's gospel, of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. A little glimpse in history as Jesus the king comes of what his kingdom will look like. Just look at it, verse 24. News about him spread all over Syria, which was the Roman name for the district that Palestine was in. News about him spread all over the place. There's no more darkness, confusion, guessing about God because people have heard about Jesus in this kingdom. Carrying on in that verse, people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Jesus' kingdom is a place where the shadow of death is banished. Because Jesus' power to heal is stronger than the power of death, of sickness, to steal the people that we love. And verse 25, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. This is a place where Gentile outsiders are on exactly the same footing as the Jewish insiders. Where Galilee and the Decapolis and beyond the Jordan, the Gentile regions are in exactly the same list as Jerusalem and Judea, the Jewish, Jewishist places. This is a place where Gentiles are on exactly the same footing. This is just a little glimpse in history of what Jesus' kingdom will be like when he brings it in. Where there's no more darkness, no more shadow of death, no more exclusion. Jesus' words bring light, to shine light of the kingdom that's coming. And then Jesus' light as well, it guides. So back in verse 17, from that time on Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Like a lighthouse by the rocky cliffs on a stormy sea, Jesus' word guides, shows the way from danger, from darkness to safety and hope and light. As Jesus calls repent to turn from sitting in the darkness and turn to him for life, to stop sitting there despairing of whether anything will ever get better and to follow him to safety. Jesus' word is how he shines light into the darkness, how he shines hope of the kingdom of heaven, how he guides us from darkness into light. And all that means that Jesus' word, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's good news in every situation for all people. It isn't just for people who are close to God or who've sorted their lives out. It's for those in darkness, in the worst recesses of the world. It is good news for villains just as much as victims. It's good news for dropouts just as much as do-gooders. 
for sinners as much as saints. It's good news in the brothel as much as in the boardroom, on death row as much as in Downing Street, in slums as much as skyscrapers. Because Jesus' word gives light into darkness. And if there are any of those situations where we can't work out, how is Jesus' word good news? How is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near? Good news in that situation. Well, that just means we get to go back to Jesus' word. We need to look at it again and see there's more light in Jesus' word and Jesus' promise than we'd ever realized, than we'd ever dared to dream. Jesus' word brings light into the darkness of the world that we know that we live in. That's the first reason why a church can be confident in the power of Jesus' word. The second, in verses 18 to 22, is that Jesus' word makes fishes. In the language of Matthew, Jesus' word makes fishes. So verse 18, it's a normal day by the Sea of Galilee. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. That's what they do. It's a perfectly normal day at the office, only their office is on the shore by the sea, throwing the net into the water, waiting a couple of minutes, pulling it out, see what's there. Throw some of them into the rubbish bin, throw some of them into the bucket, we can sell them later. Throw the net back into the water, wait for a couple of minutes, pull it out, some in the bin, some in the bucket. The net in, pull it out, the bin, the bucket, the net, pull it out, the bin, the bucket. A perfectly normal day. We've done this a thousand times. Until verse 19, Jesus says, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishes of men at once. They left their nets and followed him. So if you're watching the scene, suddenly they're off down the road following Jesus on the ground, on the shore. There's a net just sat there with some fish still flipping in it, trying to get back to the sea. There's a net in the sea floating away off into the middle of the lake. Because when Jesus says, follow me, they leave everything and they follow him. Actually, the second incident is even more dramatic. Verse 21 Going on from there, we saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Dad is left sitting on this boat in the middle of the lake as they're off. Bye, Dad. We'll write a postcard. They're off. Because when Jesus says, follow me, it changes their life. Now, it is worth saying, you can get carried away with how dramatic these uh, scenes are. Certainly read out of the blue, it seems like a fairly astonishing thing. And it is, but you can get carried away. So we do know from Mark chapter 1 that uh, John and James, their dad ran a fairly big fishing business. He'd have had plenty of men working for him. So it's not like they're leaving him completely in the lurch. You know, there's plenty of people who can run the ships. And we know from John 1 that these guys had all met Jesus a year earlier, spent some time following him. So it's not just this man they've never met. They know something about him. But even with that, Matthew, his point is to emphasize how impressive this change is. And you can see that from the words he repeats, particularly in verse 20 and verse 22. So verse 20, at once, they left their nets and followed him. Verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. At once, they left and followed. Immediately, they left and followed People leave behind what their life used to be about in a moment and start to follow Jesus. These are impressive scenes. But I don't think Matthew wants us to be impressed really by Peter, Andrew, James and John. If you read the rest of Matthew's Gospel, uh, Peter's the only one who really gets much airtime. He's called Satan uh, later on. 
And famously, he denies Jesus three times while Jesus is on trial. The rest, they're mentioned a couple of times, but they don't say a single word in the rest of the Gospel. This isn't a book that's meant to make us think how impressive Peter and Andrew and James and John are. This is a book and this is a story that's meant to make us see how impressive Jesus' word is. That when Jesus says, follow me, people follow him. It's a theme that starts here and develops through Matthew's Gospel, that when Jesus says to a paralyzed man, get up and walk home, he does, because Jesus said it. When Jesus says to a storm, be quiet, it is, because Jesus said it. It's a theme that starts here and develops through the Gospel. Jesus' word is powerful. The impressive drama in these scenes is down to the power of Jesus' words, that, it, that Jesus' word creates followers. When he says, follow me, people do. Someone asked me recently to lend them this, the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the C.S. Lewis stories for children. Though I was reminded, as he asked me for, if you've not reread them as an adult, they're well worth it. And if you've not read them at all, well, the first one's here, I can lend it to you tonight. Uh, you want to. And in the first book, there's, uh, I love this little moment, the, uh, this won't make sense really if you don't know the story, but they're in the world that they've got to through jumping through two magical lakes. This is before they've invented the magical wardrobe, so you have to jump through lakes. And they're in this world, and the cabbie, who's a colourful East London bloke, uh, is there. And he says, I'd happily live here the rest of my life, but my wife's still in London, and she'd be a bit sad. And so you get this moment. Aslan threw up his shaggy head, opened his mouth, and uttered a long single note. Not very loud, but full of power. Polly's heart jumped in her body when she heard it. She felt sure it was a call, and that anyone who heard that call would want to obey it, and what's more, would be able to obey it, however many worlds and ages lay between. And that is, I think, a wonderful little picture of what Jesus' call is, where he says, here, follow me. It's a call that is so wonderful that anyone who hears it would want to obey it, and not only that, would be able to obey it. However hard it is, however dark their heart is, however far they are from God. Anyone who hears this call would want to obey it, and what is more, would be able to. It's the power of Jesus' words. And of course, it's worth being clear, sometimes Jesus' words fall on deaf ears. But when God sends his Spirit... And Jesus' words are heard. Then it's a call that people want to follow, and more than that, are able to. However many worlds lie in between. So Jesus' impressive, powerful word, it creates followers. But it doesn't just do that. In verse 19, we see it makes fishers, and not just followers. Jesus says, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. So these men, they'd spent their lives throwing a net into the water, pulling out fish and seeing which ones they could sell. Jesus says, for the rest of your life, You're going to throw a net, my word, into the world and see who will be pulled out from the darkness into light. To see who will be saved as you throw my word into the world. In the same breath that Jesus makes them followers, he makes them fishers, pulling men and women out of darkness into light. Now we need to pause and ask the question, is this just for them or is it for us as well? You read through Matthew's Gospel, there's all sorts of things for these first disciples that are just for them. You see in Matthew 10, maybe some of the most obvious examples. And so is Jesus talking uh, just about what they're going to do, or for all of us? 
And of course, it's not that Jesus would say that everyone who's a Christian is going to leave behind their job like these guys left behind their nets. Just leave your stethoscopes and spreadsheets and scouring pads lying on the floor as you go and become a preacher 24-7. So is this just something that was for a few blokes in the first century and that's it? Actually, no, Matthew tells us by paralleling this story with the Great Commission right at the end of his Gospel, Matthew 28, where after Jesus' death and resurrection, he comes back to Galilee. He comes right back here. And there he says to his followers, I'm with you to the very end of the age. He's not just talking to the few guys in front of him who'll die in 40, 50 years, but to his church through, through all the ages. I'll be with you. And he says in his Great Commission, well, it's all about fishing people from the world. Make disciples of all nations. So what we have here, I'll make you fishers of men, is it's a little prequel, it's a little warm-up act for the Great Commission, for the church in all countries through all time, to make disciples of all nations, to go fishing in the world, to pull people from darkness into light. So this is for the church in all times, this is for all of us, that Jesus says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. When Jesus calls followers, he makes fishers. He never says, come, just enjoy individual salvation. You've got it now. You sit there, enjoy it. It's all yours. He says, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Being saved always means becoming a fisher, joining him on his mission to bring light into darkness, to bring salvation into a broken world. It always means joining him in his mission. Jesus' powerful word has been handed over to the church, and he says, Use it. Throw it into the world. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Which means that while there's one sense that speaking about Jesus to people who aren't Christians can just seem unnatural and difficult and weird, and that's why we have things like the Wednesday evenings we have at the moment, thinking last week, how am I going to answer difficult questions that people throw up? Or this week, what would it look like to open the Bible with someone who isn't a Christian and read it? Would that just be weird? In one sense, these things are unnatural and we need help on all sorts of areas, but in one sense, it's the most natural thing in the world for followers to be fishers, for people who've seen Jesus' light in our darkness to speak about him with other people. So being a fisher of people, it's as natural as in a conversation about a big issue of life. Just the sentence, I find Jesus helps me understand this when he says whatever it is, and Jesus' light shines into darkness, confusion in the world. Or it's as natural as talking about the big problems of the world and just asking, do you think this will get better? How do you think we'll solve this? And then seeing if there's a chance to show how Jesus promises that in a new creation, if not before, he'll put every wrong right. And Jesus' light shines into the despair, the pain of this world. When Jesus makes followers, he makes fishes. And so it's the most natural thing in the world for people to speak of him, of his light, to shine it into the darkness. Jesus' word, it shines light, it makes fishes. That is the word that he's given to his church for all time. And so as we finish, for those here tonight who aren't following Jesus, will you? As Jesus says to us in this room, as he said to these by the sea, follow me 
will you? Follow this one who brings light. He'll clean up the mess. Who makes sense of the darkness. Will you follow him? Will you follow him and join him on his mission of pulling others from darkness into light? And for those who are following him, this is what we are. We are his fishers. There is no follower who isn't a fisher. We're throwing his word into the world, into the darkness, to see who is pulled out into light. Pulled out into the kingdom that we get a glimpse of in verses 24 and 25, where there is no darkness anymore, where there is no pain and death anymore, where there's no exclusion anymore. That's who we are. (laughs) What an astonishing job to be given. By this King Jesus, take my word to bring people into this kingdom. Should we pray together as we go out into this week to do that job? Our Father, we praise you that the Bibles we have in our hands, on our laps, are full of this word that is light into darkness and turns people, makes followers and fishers of people like us. Father, thank you that you've spoken your word to us. Thank you for the ways that you've changed us. And please, as a church, we'll be increasingly be those who find it the most natural thing in the world to share Jesus' light with the people around us. Would you give us the joy of seeing men and women pulled from darkness into light by his powerful word that we'd enjoy his kingdom with them forever. Amen.